Okay, we are in the book of Hebrews this year. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of Hebrews. I have a question. Where are we meeting tomorrow? We meet here at 530. Yep. Yes, 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 yes. If you signed up on for the, for the retreat, if you signed up on Facebook, the very last page of that little sign-up sheet has all those names, and you can just check your, check your name and say you're going, um, and then you can pay later and check that box too. So there's that. So we're in the book of Hebrews. We, are, we have been in all year. We're gonna, we're gonna, it's going to take the whole year for us to finish this. So we're going to be in chapter 7. So if you want to turn there, that'd be great. Chapter 7. I want to get you caught up on, on where we have been so far. But be, even before we do that, I want to just kind of take a, a bigger step back and, and, and ask a question. Don't, don't answer, um, but think through it. Why do we even study the Bible? Like, why are, why are we here? Why are you guys here? Why are some of you sitting on the floor when there's a seat right there? Um, so... <laughs> so, why, why, why study the Bible? Why, why, why get rooted in God's Word? And I think the, an answer, a good answer is um, to know God. Uh, he has revealed Himself to us, we believe, in his, through His Scriptures, through His Word, through the Bible. And so we, when we study and when we read His Word, we... We get to know Him, and to know Him means to love and trust Him. That, that, that's kind of a natural thing that happens. When, when you get to know the God of the Bible, you, you, you naturally grow in a, in a knowledge of, a, a love for, and a trust in, in Him. And so that's our ultimate goal. That's why we're here. That's why we want to study the Bible. So why, why the book of Hebrews? And what we said from the very beginning is this book, maybe more than any other, um, highlights how big a, of a deal Jesus is. Like he's, he's a bigger deal than, than you and I could really ever imagine. And the author of Hebrews, who is unknown, we don't know who this author was, um, and actually the book itself is, is, is kind of put together like, like a bunch of sermons. If you notice the, uh, chapter 1, verse, verse, first couple verses, it's not a typical letter introduction. It's not I, Paul, write to you, the church in Philippi, it's, it's none of that. It starts right into this powerful description of who Jesus is. And so we think that it's actually sermons. So we think this is a preacher, a very skilled preacher, a very skilled communicator, and, and, and very educated person. Um, my vote would be someone like Apollos um, or someone like that. But, but to, th- this author writes to convince these Jews who are wanting to turn back from Jesus back to the old way, back to the law, back to the sacrificial system of the temple, back to un- under the Levitical priesthood, and to sit under them, which is something we'll talk a little more about tonight. And so he's writing to these people, and he's, or speaking to these people, and he's convincing them of how Jesus is so much better than anything they would turn to, especially this, this old system, because Jesus came to fulfill that system. And that system did exactly what it was designed to do, but Jesus is better. And he starts by saying, Jesus is better than angels. And we go, why would he start there? Well, because angels were some of the most revered 
creatures. And, and you think about it, any time an angel shows up in the Bible, first of all, people freak out and think they're going to die. It usually was what happens. But then the angel says, I'm here on behalf of God. This is what's going to happen. And then what happens? It happens. I don't know how you'd answer that question, actually. Um, whatever the angel says is going to happen always happens. And so they, they had this rightful respect for angels because they brought the very message of God. Whatever they said would happen, happened, and we can take it for, for absolute truth. And he says, Jesus is greater than the angels. Like, you, why, won't, why won't you listen to his word? And so he starts there. He says, Jesus is greater than Moses. He says, Moses to Jesus is like a house is to a builder. You would never walk up to a house and go, wow, house, you are just, you look awesome. You did a great job building yourself. No, you, you praise the builder for, for, for the house, for the building that he built. And he says, that's, that's Jesus to Moses. Moses is a good guy, but Jesus is far greater. And you're wanting to turn back to the way of Moses. He says, Jesus offers a better um, salvation. Jesus offers a better hope. Jesus offers a better rest, ultimately, in, e in eternity. He says, nothing you turn back to compares to Him. So, um, he, he starts this beautiful sermon um, describing Jesus as, as the, um, the heir of all things, who, who through the world, who the world was created through, and who upholds the universe by the power of His Word. <clears throat> this is Jesus. And <clears throat> in chapter 5, He introduces this, this topic of, of Jesus being a better high priest. And He, and he mentions this name, Melchizedek. And then, he, and then at the end of chapter 6, verse 20, I want you to look there. Chapter 6, verse 20 says... Actually, let me start at 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, which we'll talk a little more about, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, so who is this Melchizedek? So we need to understand who he is. Turn to Genesis chapter 14. Keep your finger in Hebrews 7. But turn to Genesis 14. Who is this mystery man? To get you caught up, chapter 12 of Genesis, God calls Abraham out of, of, the, of the Chaldeans. He is, which is the land eventually known as Assyria. He calls him out. Um, says, follow me, go to an unknown place. Abraham and his wife Sarai and, and his nephew Lot, they leave. And they travel to Egypt, and then eventually they leave there, and they come back to uh, Hebrew, or Hebron. Uh, and basically is the area in which uh, God promises that, that it's a land that they will eventually have. It's, it's the promised land. That's where he settles. And then in chapter 13, he and Lot get in kind of a little bit of a dispute, kind of. They separate. They decide to kind of split, split ways. 
Um, Abraham stays there, and Lot moves to the city of Sodom. In chapter 14, the beginning of chapter 14, there's a war that breaks out. And these, there's like these nine kings, five on one side, four on the other. They battle against each other, and there's war that takes place. And Sodom is kind of taken captive, and so Lot becomes a prisoner. And, and so the, this entourage of kings and armies, they travel, they continue on. Abraham finds out, and he gets his crew together, and they take off, and they overcome this, these armies, these, these kings, and they actually conquer them by the Lord's help, and, and they rescue Lot. And on their way home, uh, Abraham meets this mystery man. You can see it in verse 17. Genesis 14, verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Check this. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And then Abraham does something pretty interesting. Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now, the reason that's interesting is because tithes wouldn't be something that's introduced or um, commanded, essentially, by the Lord until Moses, which is like potentially 700 years later. And so Abraham, out of reverence and respect for this mystery king-like priest or priest-like king, pays him a tenth. It's pretty fascinating. So the author of Hebrews is going to explain to us what this means, and he's going to make the connections to Jesus that, uh, that, that are pretty significant. So we will start back in chapter 7. So let me give you kind of an overview of, of what this chapter is. I would break it up into three sections. The first section, 1 through 10. Basically, the author is going to spend the first 10 verses setting up how significant Melchizedek is. Okay? He's just going to talk about this man and how significant this, that interaction was with Abraham, the patriarch, the one who carries the promise of God. Um, so he's going to set that up. Verses 11 through 21, he's going to talk about of, because Jesus is this, this priest in the order of Melchizedek, it, because of that, Jesus offers a, a better covenant. He, he actually is the guarantor or the, the one who guarantees a better covenant. Okay, so he's going to spend the middle talk, talking through that. And then at the very end... Um, Chapter, uh, verses 23 through 28, he's going to talk about the power of this new covenant, how powerful this new covenant is, and why it's so incredibly better than anything they would want to turn back to. So, um, starting in verse 1, we'll, we'll jump in. 1 through 3, here we go. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the God Most High. Now, no mention of him anywhere else, and it calls him a priest of the God Most High. God has just showed up. God has just picked Abraham out of, out of who knows how many. Uh, and yet, God apparently 
was doing something with someone else. Priest of the God Most High. Met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He, being Melchizedek, is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. The name Melchizedek, okay, broken up into two parts. Melech is king and Sedek um, is righteousness. So literally his name means king of righteousness. King of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem. Uh, king of peace, that is, he says. So Salem was a city. There's really not a whole lot mentioned about it. We think that it eventually becomes Jerusalem. Um, but the word Salem is kind of related in Hebrew to the word what? Shalom. Peace. So he is king of righteousness, and he is king of peace. And he's also a priest of the God Most High. Verse 3. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, that he continues a priest forever. So the author is pointing out the fact, not, not that this man was miraculous per se, not, we, we don't know, but, but it's just interesting that, that God would bring this man, that God would call him a priest of the God Most High, and that, that Abraham, God's chosen patriarch, would pay a tenth in, in respect to him. And he's, he's saying his name is King of Righteousness, King of Peace. He is a priest. He is a king. And you see these connections of the type of Messiah that would come. So, verse 4. See how great this man was to show whom... Uh, okay, see how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi um, who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descendants from Abraham. So why? Okay, what? What does Levi have to do with any of this? Who's Levi? Yeah? Son of Jacob. How many sons did Jacob have? Twelve. Who's, who was Jacob's dad? Who was Isaac's dad? Abraham. So Jacob is, is, is Abraham's what? Grandson. So, I, so, so you see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob has twelve sons. Those twelve sons become the twelve tribes of Israel. And Levi... Um, is, is who Moses and Aaron, brothers, were, were from. Okay? So when God sets up this, this Mosaic law, this sacrificial system, and He anoints Aaron as the first priest to kind of carry out the, the priestly duties, to carry out, to receive the tithes, to make the sacrifices, to, to do all these things, to make atonement for the sins of the people, and so it's, it's kind of said to believe, it's always seen as the, the Levitical line, the line of Levi, is who the priest will be. And so, it, you know, father, son, to, to son, to passed on down, um, it's always in the Levitical line. So, he's, so he, he brings in, he's saying, Abraham, okay, this is what he's trying to point, Abraham pays a tithe to this man, and, and all he's going to say, Levi is in the is in Abraham. So it's, it's kind of like Levi 
paying a tithe, and Levi's the one that receives the tithe. He's, again, he's setting up how significant Melchizedek is for a purpose. Verse 6, But this man, who does not have his descent, um, descent from, from them, from Levi, or from Abraham, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Verse 7, It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In other words, you're just saying, Melchizedek was superior in this moment, was, was seen as a, as a greater man because he blessed Abraham. The superior blesses the inferior is what he's pointing out. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, with this case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So, um, it's just fun to say loins, to be honest. <laughs> When's the last time you said loins out loud? Let's, let's all do it. Ready? One, two, three. Loins. There you go. Doesn't it just feel good? There's something... I don't know. Okay. Uh, I lost my place. I did. For, uh, okay, ten. Okay, so we finished that part. So he's, he's... One through ten, he's just setting up how significant this man, this Melchizedek man is to kind of point out how he relates to Jesus starting in verse 11. Now, back to, back to the group of people, because now he went off on this Melchizedek character, and now he's speaking back to these Jewish people who are wanting to turn from, turn from Jesus to back, back to the law, back to the Levitic, Levitical priesthood, back to the sacrificial system. He said, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Again, Aaron, first priest in the line of Levi, you see, you see what he's saying. Ultimately, he's saying, why would, there be, why would there be a need for someone to come from a different order than Levi, from, from, from Melchizedek? Um, well, there's something that we're missing here. Because there was a, there was a prophecy there was a messianic prophecy that the Messiah would come, and he would come in the order of Melchizedek. So, so this was something that was known to them. And, and he's pointing out, why would there be a need for one if this, the system you're wanting to turn back to did its job? There wouldn't be. He's about to point out the fact that because there's a new high priest that, that needs to come, that means there needs to be a new system. There needs to be a new law. Um, for when there is a change in the priesthood, there is, um, there, is a, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, for which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descendant from Judah in connection with the tribe Moses said nothing about priests. So he's pointing out Jesus... Is from another tribe. He's not, he's not from the tribe of Levi, which is, that's the system that God set up through Moses to do its, to do its part. It was never meant to be the ultimate system. It was never meant to, to um, make eternal sacrifice. It, never, it was never meant to do that. It did, it did exactly what it was supposed to do, which was to highlight the need for 
and eternal sacrifice and, and the, law of, the law of Moses, the Levitical priesthood, that whole system couldn't cut it. It wasn't supposed to. And he's saying that's why there was a need for another to come from a different line. Verse 15, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises like in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent. Again, again, he's talking about if you're born in the tribe of Levi, then you, that's your job. You're a priest. He's, not ta- he's saying there needed to be one not born from bodily descent, but what? By the power of an indestructible life. Here's what he's saying. That Jesus' perfect life and his sacrificial death, and his powerful resurrection, that proved that he's this priest-like king. That proved that, that he is the, the, um, the new high priest under which a new system comes, a new law comes, a law of grace. So, um, he is, he is, he's now saying, if... if if Melchizedek was, was great, how much greater is Jesus? Verse 17. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now this, this is a quote, a direct quote from Psalm 110, verse 4. Now, Psalm 110, I recommend you read it later. You'll recognize several verses in there because... It is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. And it's the, it's the prophecy that I told you about. It's the messianic prophecy that, that, that they recognized, that David wrote, that this was a reference to the one who would come, the Messiah who would come. And he's, he's quoting Psalm 110. In fact, he's going to quote a little more of it in a, in a few verses here. Verse 18. For on the one hand... A former commandment is set aside um, because its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect, because of its weakness and uselessness. Those words, it's not saying um, pointless. The, the law served its point. It served its purpose. It did exactly what it was supposed to do. He's describing it's limitless. It's, it's limited. It was never meant to be the fuller picture. It was never meant to be the complete, eternal sacrifice. But, verse 19, But, on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And that's through Jesus. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. Okay? But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. And then it continues after the order of Melchizedek. So again, he quotes the same verse just a little bit further up. Verse 22, his whole point of that section, this makes Jesus the guarantor or the one who guarantees a better covenant. So, um, he continues. So verses, verses 23 through 28 are going to be him illustrating and describing why this covenant is so much better um, and, and, and what it actually does for us and why Jesus is better. Verse 23, The former priests were, ma- were many in number 
because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. In other words, there wasn't just one high priest. Aaron didn't live forever. Aaron died, and then someone else had to be a priest, and then that person would die, and someone else had to be a priest, and then he would die. And in other words, their ministry didn't continue. It, it ended with them, and a new, and a new ministry had to, had to carry on. Verse 24, but he holds, but he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he, is, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Okay, so think about the power of that statement to a group of people who are constantly being persecuted for their faith, who are constantly being um, rejected or oppressed or sometimes kicked out of their family, sometimes beaten, sometimes, you know, rejected for work because of, of all these things. And, and yet he's saying, the, the priest that you would turn back to, they're going to die and they can't make intercession for you. The priest that I'm wanting you to hold on to continually make intercession for you because he lives forever. He will make, make um, eternal intercession for you. He, he, will, he will do this for, forever. Um, it, why would you turn is, is kind of the assumed question. For, verse 26, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy and innocent and unstained and separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, um, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but in the word of, an, of the oath, which came later, meaning it trumped the previous, um, it appoints a son who has, made, who has been made perfect forever. So let me, let me kind of finish by describing the the, the contrast that he's showing from verses 15 on. He said, he's saying, describing the former system, the, the, the way of Moses uh, under the Levitical priesthood, the law. It was um, priests were, were made priests because of their genealogy, but under the new way, under Jesus, uh, they, he was made priest because of its indestructible life. The old way was ineffective, in other words, weak and useless, to bring them to God. But the new way, Jesus offers a better hope and helps us draw near to Him. Um, the priests before, there were many in number, okay, year after year. In Jesus' way, there's one. In the former way, death prevented their, their continued, continued ministry and intercession on our behalf. And in Jesus his ministry and intercession lives forever with him. In the, in the former way, there was a curtain, that, a veil between the people and God. Right? The, only the high priest who could go into the Holy of Holies and make sacrifice for the sins of the people. But under Jesus' way, the, the, the veil is torn, the curtain is removed, and now there is relationship, now there is closeness, now we can be drawn near to God because of him. In the old system, the, the priests were sinful and full of weakness. In the new system, under Jesus, he's holy and innocent and perfect, 
perfectly unstained and separated from sinners. It's holy. Under the old system, they had to make they had to offer daily sacrifices for themselves and for their people. Under new under the new system under Jesus, there's one sacrifice in this phrase that you'll see over and over throughout Hebrews, once and for all. So, he ends this powerful description of Melchizedek by helping them see, listen, there is there is no logical reason why you would turn from this one, this, this new high priest, this priest-like king, and turn back to an old, weakless, weak, useless, um, limited system. So I guess I asked you that same question. What, what, like, what would it be for you? Like, what would you turn from? It, what, what would you turn to um, away from the the one who reigns supreme over everything, the one who is the heir of all things. Like, who would you turn to that would come close to what you have in Jesus? So we're going to take a quick break, and then Drew will get up and, and finish this out. Stand up, stretch, use the restroom, whatever you got to do. Okay, two more quick announcements. Uh, the first is that we... Um, just so you know, we actually finally have a, a podcast up with a lot of the recordings of the teachings from the last semester. Yeah. So, finally have that. You can, you can go, if you go to the Sunnybrook website and then find the table or college, it actually says college and then says the table underneath that. If you click that, that'll go to the audio stuff. Also, it's, it's on iTunes. If you go to iTunes and type table podcast and then scroll way, 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 way down. Um, then you can find us. We're, we're looking actually. We'll probably try to change that name to something like uh, the Table OS, at OSU or the Table Campus Ministry to see if we can get it a little bit higher up that list because it's kind of hard to find. But um, I will say, like our last like three or four sessions didn't record on our last thing, which is so we're missing like the Can you lose your salvation if you weren't there? No, I wasn't there. You'll never know, Anthony. Um, so, um, so. Like, so yeah, so that's which is why we're trying something different, which by the way, Scott, where are you? Scott? Can I hit sleep on this, Scott? Can I, can I hit sleep on this and it'll keep recording? Okay. Where's sleep on these newfangled? Man, fancy. Okay, all right. So anyway, so that's up. Second, this isn't fully ready yet. I may have, we may have shared this with you before, but back here over in this corner, we had these two two bookshelves, and, and we have been kind of in the process of honing that into a resource section for you guys. There's some stuff that you can use. We want to get that set up where we can have you guys actually kind of checking those things out and, and even put together kind of a specific shelf of some things that Scott and I think would be really good for you guys to be reading in on. But a, a number of commentaries, if you're studying through a book of the Bible and you want some help with that, there's some commentaries up there. There's some resources on just theology stuff. So um, hopefully in the next week or two, we'll have that up and running for you and you guys can start kind of checking some of those things out. But I um, want to make you guys aware of that. All right, jumping into this second half, grabbing kind of a theme from this book of Hebrews, here is my opening question for you that I want you to think about. What are we here for? What are, what are human beings like made for? What's, what's our purpose? What, what's the, what is the reason that we are here? 
I asked that same question to our, our leaders yesterday in a, in a prayer group meeting. You'll be happy to know that they got it right. Um, the reason we are here, they said, is to glorify God. That's why human beings are here for. But to that, I have to ask a follow-up question. In what way? Because the truth is, everything is here to glorify God. Trees are here for the glory of God. Fish are here for the glory of God. Cheetahs are here for the glory of God, right? Um, that's really weird. I didn't know we had so, so many like, cheetah enthusiasts here. Um, so, um, so, so listen, cheetahs. Thought we said cheetos. Cheetos. I dropped back to cheetahs and I'm like, ah, yeah, whatever, cheetahs, but cheetos, yeah. Um, so, 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 so follow, follow me here on this. Fish bring glory to God by swimming. Cheetahs, not cheetos, cheetahs bring glory to God by running. All right, birds bring glory to God by flying. How do men and women, how do human beings specifically bring glory to God? What are we designed specifically for? That's a really big question. That's, a, that's one of the actual like, major questions of, of human history, right? Whether you're Christian or not, or whatever religion, or whether you have no religion, one of the major questions asked by philosophers and scholars and everyday people like you and me throughout the course of human history is, why are we here? What are we supposed to be doing? And here's one of the reasons that's so huge. Because um, when you can figure out what something or someone is designed for, when you can figure out what it's meant to be doing, then, then you can use it to its full capacity. And in our instance, it means that we will find the greatest amount of freedom when we figure out what we're here for. That we will feel most alive when we do the very thing that we were designed to be doing. This is true of everything. A fish may feel like its greatest freedom will come if it could just get out of that lake and get out onto dry land, but the truth is its greatest freedom comes from doing what it was designed to do, stay in the water, swim. iPhones are beautiful and amazing things, and they do some great things, but if you, start, uh, you decide one day to use yours as a hammer, okay, you quickly discover that it, it gets you nowhere when you try to use it for something other than what it was designed to do, other than what it was designed for. What were human beings designed to do? Yes, glorify God. In what way? If I could give it to you most simply, I think, and, and, there, and, and to, this can get more complex and more deep, but, but on the most basic level, I believe human beings were designed to, to glorify God in two ways. First is to know Him. We glorify God by knowing Him. Second, we glorify God by serving Him. Okay, so human beings were designed to glorify God by knowing Him. And you can see this. You go all the way back to the beginning. God, there in the Garden of Eden, He creates Adam and Eve, and He sets them in the garden. And the first thing is they know Him. They relate to Him. They speak to Him. It seems to be implied that they walk with Him in the garden through the cool of the day. They know, and, and by know Him, I ought to kind of add to that and enjoy Him. Like that's how human beings are designed to glorify Him. It's, it's different than knowing Mark who lives two doors down at your apartment thing, the guy that you kind of wave awkwardly to and do that weird eyebrow raised hello thing, you know? Like, like we're talking about an actual, like He is glorified when we see Him as He is and enjoy Him above other things. So they know and enjoy Him. That seems to be happening in the Garden of Eden. And the other thing we see is that God almost immediately sets them in the garden and puts them to work. 
gives them a task that before sin enters the picture, work is a part of our design to serve God. He says, work the garden. And he says, be fruitful and multiply. The, the design was that, that human beings as God's image bearers would, would spread throughout the world, spread His image throughout the world that they would oversee and take care of the earth just like God does and that His glory would be spread as human beings went all over the place knowing Him and serving Him. That is what we were made for, but that's not how it is most of the time. That's not how it is throughout most of the world that most human beings don't live in those things. And, and therefore things are broken. The Bible says that's because of sin. It's because of that moment when Adam and Eve, Eve first take a bite out of that fruit and everything inside of them changes. That whole, everything that they were designed to do and to be and to become gets twisted and gets broken around and they're, they're no longer able to, because of their sin, know God the way they're supposed to. They're no longer able to relate to Him. First of all, you say they actually don't even, something gets broken with the way human beings relate to each other. Immediately, once they sin, they recognize that they are what? Naked. And where before there was no shame and there was proper intimacy, immediately there's shame and, and they seek to cover themselves up. And then God comes and rather than that daily walk that they seem to be having, they, they run and hide. They know something broke when they did that. And from there on out, because of sin, they're no longer allowed to be in the perfect, outright, absolute presence of a holy God, and human beings can't know Him like they were supposed to know Him. And not only that, but also it says that, that sin basically from that point owns the human heart, captures the human heart to, to, to the point that we aren't able then to serve God the way we're supposed to serve Him. We aren't able to obey Him. It's not just that we do a lot of bad things, it's that we can't help but live this kind of life. This is what Paul says describing this in Romans 3. What shall we conclude then? Do we, he's talking about Jews, do we have any advantage over Gentiles? Not at all, for we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. The phrase Paul will use to describe this is that we are, as human beings, enslaved to sin. So I don't have the ability. It's not that I can't ever do anything good. It's just that my heart is so twisted that I don't have the ability to serve God as I ought to. I will never be able to measure up to the holiness and the righteousness. I, I, I naturally am bent towards choosing sinful things, things that go against Him. This is why, by the way, and this is side note, okay? Um, this is why, by the way, that, that idea that my uncle, um, you know, he didn't really know. My uncle didn't know any, who just died, okay, pretend. My, my uncle, who didn't know anything about Jesus, and he didn't really want anything to do with Christianity, but he was a really good guy, so I know that he went to heaven when he died. This is why that idea is so crazy. Because, first of all, as, as the Bible says, no one's good. Like, no one does good things. Nobody is able to go after those things. And that's, by the way, you don't even need the Bible to prove that. You don't even need to believe the Bible to believe that. We don't even measure up to our own standards of goodness. 
I love what Tim Keller says, that if you were to just kind of wrap a tape recorder around your own neck and, and at the end of your life, we were only going to judge you by the things that recorder heard you saying about morality. How would you do? Like, we were only going to judge you by what you said about gossip, good or bad. We were only going to judge you by what you said about whether or not we ought to be honest all the time in all our relationships. We were only going to judge you by whether or not people ought to be selfish or people... Um, ought to respect authority like their parents. We're only going to use your own words. The truth is, every one of us fails that test. And so no one's getting. The second reason that the whole he's good so he ought to be in heaven thing doesn't quite work is because it's a, it's a misunderstanding of what heaven, the new heaven and the new earth actually are. Heaven is not, which I think the common conception is, heaven is not like a reward for doing good things. Like the ultimate retirement, you paid your dues and now you get... The point of it is God Himself. And so if you spent your whole life doing all kinds of good things but not wanting anything to do with God, why would you expect to have everything to do with God after you're dead? Like that's, that's the point of it. And so that whole thing just doesn't work. Again, side note, back to where we were. Because of sin in our life, humans are broken. And we fail, we, we no longer have the ability to know God as we were meant to. We no longer have the ability to serve God as we were meant to. And, and everything, not just human beings, but creation as a whole just ends up out of sorts, out of whack. There just seems to be chaos um, throughout the world and within our own souls, a restlessness that sits there. Now, I want to talk tonight about just one half of those things, the knowing God part, and, and how that seems to play itself out through the Bible and how the writer of Hebrews seems to talk about that here in Hebrews 7. Um, specifically, these are the two verses I want to settle in on from, your, from our passage tonight. Hebrews 7, verses 18 through 19. They say this, For on the one hand, a former commandment, that is the old covenant, for on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. This is what I want to talk about. First, this first passage, that old covenant. On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. Let's pause to make sure we get that statement right real quick. What, what he says, and, and, and Scott clarified this. I, I hope you caught it. What he's saying when he says this is, he says the law is weak and useless, but he's not saying that the law was a mistake. He's not saying that the Old Covenant was, was like a failure. There are basically there are kind of two, two um, false extremes that a lot of Christians go to when they think of what, what the Old Testament is supposed to be about, what the Old Covenant was and what it accomplished. And, and the first um, that I think a number of Christians actually believe today is that the Old Covenant is the way that like, the Jewish people get saved and the New Testament, the New Covenant, is for everybody else. The Old Covenant is what does that, and that's just not true. Galatians 3 and 4, Romans 4, that, that, that what matters is not your Jewishness or Jewish rituals like circumcision and dietary restrictions. What matters, and Paul will argue, what always mattered, even before the law was ever introduced, was faith. And so that we become God's people not by anything to do with that Old Covenant, but by, by faith, by grace through faith. 
And so it's always been that. But the second actually faulty extreme that some Christians go to is to think that actually what the Old Covenant was designed to do was to bring people to God, and yet it kind of failed. That was plan A, and it didn't quite pan out when Israel wasn't obeying, and so plan B, let's send Jesus in to fix things. That's not true either. It was never Old Covenant, and then that's not working, so we've got to come up with something else. From the beginning, catch this. If you hear, uh, I'm not going to say nothing else. I hope you hear a few other things. Um, top three, all right? From Genesis to Revelation, it's about Jesus. Like, that's, that's where it's driving. That's, that's where the whole Bible is driving towards from the beginning. So it wasn't like the New Testament was the first time God got this idea. This is where we were driving to. And what, what Scott said was this. The, the law is not weak and useless in the fact that it failed in what it was doing. It was never actually intended to draw us, to, to put us in that perfect relationship. It was never meant to be the end-all, be-all of how we get our relationship right with God. In fact, you could almost argue, not that it does the opposite, but that it at least shows or highlights the opposite. That is, what the law actually did was that it highlighted man's separation from God. It highlighted the distance between human, sinful human beings and a holy God. So you do have this really cool and incredible concept of the tabernacle and later the temple. This idea that God himself came, Yahweh, came and dwelled among his people. Like He, he, he didn't choose to, to dwell up on some mountain where they had to go to to try and find him and where they had to make long treks and journeys and completely set apart, completely separate from all these people. He literally, this was a, a, an amazing thing that as they're wandering in the wilderness, he made his dwelling right in the middle of them set up this tabernacle and lived right there. And then later, once they owned the land in Jerusalem, they set the temple there. And so you did have this incredible thing where God was near his people. And yet, the temple is this incredible symbol of God's nearness. And at the exact same time, it's a symbol of his distance. Because it was actually, if you remember, the temple is actually broken up into three kind of levels, if you will. Just on the outside, you had what was called the court, and the only people allowed to go into the court were Israelites, God's chosen people. Gentiles couldn't go, and in fact, like flawed Israelites couldn't even go in there. It had to be kind of like normal, altogether, everything, everything right Israelites could go into the court. And then you had, next to that, the holy place, or when it was the tabernacle, it was called the tent of meeting, and that was a place that only the priests could go. Israelites weren't allowed that far in, but the priests, those from the tribe of Levi, who were designated as priests, were allowed to go into that place. And then you had what was called what? The Holy of Holies, or the most holy place. And this is the place where the Ark of the Covenant was. This is the place where the presence of God sat. And this was walled off to everyone else by a 60-foot high, 3-inch thick curtain. And there was only one person on the face of the planet who was allowed to go in that room, and that was the high priest. And only on one day out of the entire year was he allowed to go in there, and that was on the Day of Atonement. And only after he had made sacrifices for his own sin to make sure that he was right by sacrificing a bull for himself, could he then go in there and make atonement for the other people on the Ark of the Covenant. And only when he was wearing the proper garb could he do that. He literally had this kind of special tunic, and he would have to uh, go through this ceremony bathing and stuff to make sure that everything was right and sacred and this tunic actually had like bells woven onto it so that as he approached the most holy place that, that the, the, the ringing of the bells was a sign so you don't just pop in on God unannounced. 
Like that's not the way that works. And so literally it says you put bells on there, you weave those in so that, so that there's the, they're ringing as he makes his way in. And it says, so he does not die when he comes in. You don't just pop in, you don't just waltz into the presence of God. And, and there's this incredible amount of, it is, it is highlighted over and over again by the Old Covenant, this incredible amount of distance between fragile, wicked, sinful human beings and an absolutely holy God. Like, I, I can only imagine, truthfully, the terror that had to be going across the high priest, um, his heart and his mind, Aaron especially, that very first time he ever went back there. Can you imagine what it would have been like reaching for that temple curtain, wondering if it's the last thing you're going to do. Like, this could be it, and I see him trembling and, and knees shaking, which would actually be somewhat funny because he's covered in bells, so he'd be, like, ringing the whole time. <laughs> but, but for him himself would have to be absolutely terrifying. Like, I might go in, what if I didn't do this right? What if I didn't do the sacrifice right? right? What if I didn't do the, the bathing right? What if I didn't go in? Like, what if God kills me when I step into his presence? And you go, would that really happen? And the answer is he did it three times at least that we know of. First time in Leviticus 10, right after the priests are ordained, Aaron and his sons, two of them, it says, offer unauthorized fire at, at the place of incense. We don't know exactly what happened. There's a verse, a few, a few verses later in verse 6 there, I think, um, that seems to imply that they were actually drunk when they went there. We know that they were careless. There's a, a passage a little bit later that actually seems to imply that they, they themselves as priests, but not the high priest, but just as regular priests, may have tried to approach that holy of holies, that most holy of place. And it says that the fire of Yahweh came out and consumed them and killed them in front of the people. There's another time when, when the Ark of the Covenant, that is where the, the dwelling, the presence of Yahweh was, where it was actually got captured by the Philistines. And it's an incredible passage in uh, the beginning of 1 Samuel around, I think 1 Samuel 5 and 6, where it starts, the Philistines capture it. They think they did something awesome until it starts wreaking havoc on all their cities. And finally, they just decide to send it back. We can't handle it anymore. And they send it back, and it goes back to this town, Beth Shemesh. I want to say, I'm, make sure I'm saying that right. Um, it goes back to this town there, and, um, and they go to look into this thing. Um, the people are curious, and so they, they get the Ark of the Covenant. And remember, they, a lot of them have never seen it before. It was only supposed to be in the tabernacle. And here it is. They, they peer open to look and see what was inside of it, and 70 of them die. They have an incredible quote that comes from that town shortly after. But let me share you one more story. Later, when they're trying to move the ark from that city into another one, they're bringing it along, dragging it behind oxen on a cart, which is specifically something that God said not to do. The only way you transport the ark to make sure that it's absolutely stable is that you take these Levites who are ordained to carry it, and they carry it on poles to make sure that everything stays stable. But these people decided to carry it on a cart. They reach a place where the oxen stumble and the cart starts to slide off and this guy named Uzzah reaches out to stabilize it. But this isn't a box on the back of a UPS truck that's about to fall off. This is the very presence of Yahweh and it says that God's, God's anger burned against him for touching this and he dies right there. This is the quote that came out of that town in Beth Shemesh out of uh, 1 Samuel 6 Verse 21, they said this, after 70 of their people die, there is this sense of terror that comes over them and they cry out, who can stand in the presence of Yahweh, this holy God? 
Now, don't get confused, okay? God didn't kill those people because he's mean. That's not what happens. It's not that God just throws a little temper tantrum and people get wiped out. It's, it's the truth that this is what absolute holiness does to sin. By its nature, the absolute holiness of the divine creator, it, it, it can't help but destroy sin. Like fire's not mean for burning paper up. That's what fire does to paper. Okay? It was paper's fault for going into the fire. Okay? And, and this is what, this is what, I'm not saying that's an accident by any means that, that God does. I believe he has a hatred towards sin. But, but this is what takes place. Who can stand in the presence of Yahweh, this holy God? That was the cry of these people. And in that sense, do you see how the curtain that divider between God and man, the Holy of Holies, do you see how that's actually like a mercy? You see how he's protecting them from something that they could never handle anyway. Even Moses, who was said to be talking to, to God as, as one speaks to a friend, when he asks to see the glory of God, what does God say? You can't. Like, I'll let you see like the tail, like the tail end of me as I'm walking away, just a little bitty glimpse, but if I let you see any more than that, you'll die. You can't handle that. It's mercy. It's grace to have this divider. Do you see the problem that the very thing that human beings are designed for, the very air that we need to breathe is the exact same thing that kills us? That, that what we need more than anything, our, our very sense of life, what we are all made to know and take part in, is something that kills us when we're covered in sin that is against God. We can't even go near what we need the most until, until Jesus. And this is where everything changes. This is verse 19 that, that we just read a little bit ago. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Jesus is the only human being who ever walked on this earth with enough perfect holiness and perfect righteousness to stand absolutely in the outright presence of God. Because He is God. Because He was absolutely holy and He was absolutely perfect. And so when Jesus gets up on the cross and He dies in our place for our sins, this incredible thing happens. And, and, and all of our sin gets paid for in that moment on the cross. And at that moment, something crazy happens at the temple, right? You know the story. That curtain that divided God from His people for nearly 1,500 years, three inches thick, splits in half. And this crazy thing happens when Jesus says that, and He is declared to be, the writer of Hebrews says, He is declared to be the new and the final high priest. And it's through this high priest that we receive access to God. You see, over the 1,500 years, there were so many high priests that once a year got to go into the temple. And before they did that, of course, or into the most holy place, they had to offer that sacrifice. Jesus is the first one who walks into the very presence of God, pulls back the curtain and takes us in there with him. Like he's the first one who allows us to walk back there because it says that what he does is he intercedes for us. He lives forever to intercede for us. That is, he goes back and, and he, as the only one holy enough to stand before God, the only one righteous enough to stand before God, says, mine, my holiness, my righteousness is his. My holiness is hers. So she goes with me. He goes with me. 
So now we have access to this God that we were made for, that we were meant to be able to know. This is how he says it in verse 25. Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. I love what John Piper says, that the best news of the gospel is not the forgiveness of sins. And the best news of the gospel is not the imputed righteousness of Jesus on our behalf. And and the best news of the gospel is not even eternal life. The best news of the gospel is that we now have the ability to know God. The best news of the gospel is that we can do what we were made for now. That we have the ability that we didn't have before. That we have the access that we didn't have before. Because the great high priest who will never die, who will live forever and always be there to intercede for us, goes on our behalf and takes us with him into the very throne room of God. That's the good news of the gospel. Um, I don't know. Like I, I can't pretend that everyone in this room here tonight like, actually believes this stuff. I don't know that for sure, that, that maybe there are some people in here, maybe one or two of you, or, or maybe more than that, who, who aren't even sure if you buy this and, and would not at all consider yourselves to be a Christian, and I don't know how you ended up in here. Um, maybe your friend said, let's go to the table, and you thought that was like a new bar on the strip or something like that. Um, or, or, or maybe maybe it was honestly a rough fall semester, or, or maybe a rough couple years leading up to it, and... and and there's part of you that just goes, man, what I'm doing is not working. I may as well try and get things kind of fixed a little bit. I don't, I don't know. I, if you're here, I don't know. If you're here, I just want you to know we're glad. And, and I actually spent, spent some time praying for you today, um, asking God to bring you here and, and uh, asking for you to be able to hear this. And, and my hope and prayer is this. I, I believe this, um, that, that you will not find that there's something inside of all of us that's broken, and you will not find... Um, a solution to that or a key to that until you're doing what you were meant to do and that is bringing glory to Him by knowing Him and serving Him. That only happens through Jesus. I know that most of you in here would consider yourselves followers of Jesus and that you do believe in Him and you do trust in Him and, and you might be thinking, so what, Drew? We've known this all our lives. Right? Like this is actually one of like the key. If you grew up in an American evangelical church, then you've heard this phrase. It's about relationship, not religion, right? You've heard that like 20 billion times. And relationship becomes the key part of the evangelical Christianity today. So you know this and you've heard this. Here's my question for you What difference does it make in your life? Like what? You have this access that people in the Old Covenant did not have. Does your life look any different than people in the Old Covenant? Other than the fact that you're not, you know, slaughtering goats and stuff for your sacrifices. But I'm asking like this, like, and, and hear me, I'm not, I'm not going to pretend, like you, you can't read the Psalms and, and not recognize that those people knew God. A lot of those people knew and had a relationship with God, but there is something profoundly different that you and I have, something that is completely different from them. And and we're going to talk next week about what that thing is that's different. We have the ability to relate to Him in a different way. This is something that the people, that the prophets foresaw and, and prophesied about and longed for this day when we could know God in this way, when we could commune with Him, when we could relate to Him, when we could do what we were designed to do. And the question is like, like, do you even, like, do you even want that? Like, is there anything in your life that looks like you're pursuing this gift that you've been given? 
And I don't mean to guilt trip you. Like that, that makes me look lame and it doesn't really get us anywhere, right? It's like when your mom calls and gives you those not so subtle hints about coming home, <laughs> right? Sure are going to be making a lot of food this weekend. It's going to be a Gonna be ashamed to throw it all away. Sure wish someone was here to eat it. <laughs> and so even if you do go home, you somewhat resent the fact that you're going home, right? Like the last thing I want is for you to go, you're right, I'm terrible, I need to spend more time chasing after Jesus. Ugh, I guess I'll do that. Right? This isn't a guilt trip, this is an invitation. Okay, Jesus talks about, Jesus describes what the kingdom is like, what this new type of life that we're offered, he describes it like a treasure that you find in a field, but the field's not yours, and so you don't have any rights to that treasure until you purchase the field. And he says, what you would do is you would sell everything you have to go after that. Enjoy. It's like, it's, it's an absolute joy to run after this. Why would I not give everything I have to go after the very thing that I was made to do, the very thing that gives God praise, the very thing that glorifies Him? Why would I not give myself to know Him more? Why would I not throw off the things that hinder me from that? Why would I not give more time in my day to seeking Him in His Word? That's not guilt. That ought to be an invitation. That ought to be joy. Our, our heart for us this semester is that we would, as, as a people, as a ministry, that we would chase hard after Jesus, that we would do what you were made for, and that things would fall into place as we give God, so we were made for it, and He's worthy of it, even more important, that we would give to God what, what He's worthy of, and that is our, our joy and our pursuit and our love for Him. Let me pray for us that that would be what we do. Dear Father, this side of the cross, this side of Jesus, I know in me that it is, it is so easy to take for granted and to not even fully appreciate all that you've done. And there was a day when people trembled at the idea of being close to you, and I think that ought to probably still be true of us. You're still that holy. You're still that powerful. You're still that amazing. And we need that reminder in us that the good news is that um, because of what you did, because of your son Jesus, we get to approach you with all his holiness and all his righteousness. And so we're allowed to. And that is, that's bigger than I think, um, than I know that I think of. And, and so I'm just praying this for us, that you would open our eyes to the beauty of this news and that you would give us a great joy in that and that you would give us um, a love for you and a desire to chase after you and to know you because you made it possible now. Give us a hunger for you. And uh, if there is anyone in here who does not know you, Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit would do his work to convict them and to draw them to yourself tonight, that we would, through Jesus, draw near to you. I ask you that in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.